Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, David Hartman, President Emeritus and founder of Shalom Hartman Institute, with the final lecture in his four-part series titled, How Do the Different Interpretations of the Mythic Story of the Exodus Shape Our Vision of Jewish History? I work very hard preparing materials for you to be able to study and, and reflect and learn, not just to listen. And I realized that maybe I have to create a situation where the focus will be on reading the text that I've given you. Michael Wishegrad, very important contemporary philosophers, Wishegrad, Novik, So if anyone is interested, Eisen, no, Arnie Eisen, so we'll be reading from their works. You'll have the material. And in the seminar, it won't be lecturing. It will be discussions with you on the texts that I've given you. So those who are interested, and I know you are, <laughs> I have you in mind all the time. <laughs> it's an opportunity to engage me and discuss what's written in these people. We won't feel pressured, we won't feel in a rush, but we'll have an opportunity to really delve deeply into their thinking. So, in a moment of inspiration, <laughs> I look at it, I said, what am I doing, Hartman? You're asking, you want to work harder? I mean, you're getting older, take it easy. Now, I said to myself, in a moment of inspiration, maybe I should study with you these texts, and they shouldn't be just wasted. So we're gonna have a seminar series of readings on the Eisens, the Chosen People, and others, so that you should have a, a weight of material to be able to think about this issue. Now, I don't know if many people in Israel or around the world are concerned now with the issue of the Chosen People. But this was a major issue in America in the 30s and in the 40s when, in general, it's been an issue. There's a very beautiful Midrash Tanchuma which says, God, you should know you are responsible for the world hating us. You gave us a Torah. You gave us a whole way of life 
which has separated us from the world. And in that very, it's a Midrash Tanchuma. And that very giving of the Torah to us, you have made us permanent strangers in the world. Now there seems to be, from way back, with Pharaoh was frightened of the Jewish people's distinctiveness and separateness. Haman was frightened. And in general, many tyrants have always been frightened of the potential dangers of having the Jewish people thrive in their midst. It's an alien growth. Their ways are not our ways. Their language is not the language of the country. And their whole mannerisms is in some way deeply separate from what we see in the world. That's the book that Ani Eisen wrote, The Chosen People in America. Now let me clarify something very important. In the Bible, I don't see in the five books of Moses any focus on election and the separateness of the Jew with the world. But one of the major issues that Jews felt, I am distinct, I'm called to be an Am Kodosh, a Mamlechet Kohanim V'Goy Kodosh, which in some deep way means distinctiveness, separateness from the world. You are a special people. Now in the Bible, the issue of the world in terms of the relationship of the Jewish people to that world out there was only a question of intermarriage. And it was not just intermarriage, it was a concern that if your children marry the Gentile women, they will in some way become idolaters. So the fundamental thrust of the Bible was not assimilation as much as disloyalty to the God of Israel. And that if this people go out and mix and have social intercourse with the world, they will be absorbed by pagan cultures and pagan environments, and they will lose the distinctive relationship to me. So it's like the lover saying, listen, I want to control where you're going to go, who you're going to speak with, and which neighbors are you going to stay in. I want to make sure that you're going to be mine and that the seductions of the world will not affect you. So the issue in the Bible is and you will serve alien gods. And therefore the metaphors that are often used in the Bible for disloyalty are marriage metaphors, very deeply so. You are a hua, you are a prostitute, isha zonim. You are play the road, play the harlot, 
It's God's fundamental singular claim on Israel as his beloved that he's worried about. What's going to happen to my shidduch? I promised Abraham we're going to have an interesting life together. And through you, the Jews are going to be my mediative principle for the world. You will spread my name, my glory to the world, and you will bring the God of Israel to really fulfill his destiny to be the God of the nations. In other words, there's always been Professor Yegant. I am honored at your presence. There's always been a very deep, uncomfortable tension between the distinctiveness of this people, its separateness from the world, and at the same time, very deeply connected to the world. I want to get integrated into the world. I want to embrace the world but then I worried that if I'm too friendly with the world, the mishpacha is going to lose its distinctiveness. And we're going to lose our particular identity. Now what's wrong if we lose it? Well, we have a great mission. And that mission is to spread to the world the true God of Israel. And that's essentially our task and therefore we better not disappear because we are the foot soldiers in history that is the biblical thrust now in the modern world that experience took place in America most people on one level wanted to adjust to American culture their children should go to universities. They should be comfortable you know, in non-Jewish environments. And they should feel integrated into the world. So in some very deep sense, America is a laboratory for the tension between distinctiveness and integration into the world. America afforded the sense that you know, you could really feel comfortable and at home. The exile and the wandering Jew is over. You are welcomed. And the idea of a chosen people was in some way comfortable because in America, they define themselves as a chosen people, chosen to bring democracy and justice to the world. So American identity fitted in very well with Jewish identity. Jews saw themselves as distinct. Americans saw themselves as distinct. And therefore, they could easily join hands and feel comfortable with each other. So America was a new experience. They didn't live in shtetelach. They didn't live in ghettos. The world was open to them. 
I, I only know, I mean, I can speak from my own experience. Lincoln Terrace Park was where I grew up in. I grew up in the basketball courts of Brownsville. My education was there. My life's energy was there. And I had a good time. And I was playing ball all the time. And I didn't see myself as a chosen people. There were blacks, Italians, Irish, and Hartman with his keeper, which was always falling down when he was playing. My only sense of distinctiveness was my desire to be the best basketball player on the team that I should be so good that everyone should say, wow, there's Hartman. But not there's, wow, there's Hartman, who just bought Mahadran Shiba Mahadran cheese, or Mahadran Shiba Mahadran chickens. Or that's, I mean, don't you see, he's just filled with Mahadran. He's choking on Mahadran. I, I love every store that opens up an Amikur Fahim. It doesn't say kosher, it says Mahadrin. No, you have to be Mahadrin. What? That's right. Shebe Mahadrin. So, in a sense, my distinctiveness was not my Jewishness. My distinctiveness was the type of athlete I was. So, the chosen people notion of my separation from the world was not something I lived with. I wanted to be part of the New York basketball contest of the Daily Mirror. I wanted to participate in the overall cultural athletic activities that New York offered me. So in a sense, America is the focus of that double thrust within the Jewish soul, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be part, wanting to be a member of the larger society, and in another level, wondering in what way you wake up one day and say, gee, I go to the opera, I'm a member of the board of the museum. How am I Jewish? And then you say to yourself, what in America, all the kind things they want to do in the world is Jewish things. And that's what the reform rabbis were saying. The universalist spirit of America is really an expression of what Jews were deeply committed to. So therefore, to feel comfortable in America was not a threat. It was on the country living out your Jewishness in the way American society was built. So the more you felt part of the society, the more you felt at ease. And then someone would come along and give you a drush and say, but how are you Jewish? Are your grandchildren going to be Jewish? And then suddenly the panic sets in. I made it with the Goyim but I haven't made it with the Jews. 
how do I make it with the Jews and at the same time feel comfortable with the Goyim? See, Israel solves that problem. There's no double tension. That's the joy of living in Israel. There are not two communities. There are not two civilizations which are having to integrate with each other. We're not part of Islamic culture. We don't feel in any way a need to read Arabic literature. We are, but not in America, on the contrary. In America, to read Henry James and to be part of the learned intellectual elite was something very distinctively Jewish. So then came the question, what makes something Jewish? Is Jewish then the kosher food and the kitchen? Is that the embodiment of this covenantal historical people? What is the carrier of our distinctive identity? What reminds us that we're part of a separate family? I belong to another mishpacha. And the issue there now is not idolatry. In the Bible, it was disloyalty to God. In America, the issue was disloyalty to the family. You're weakening the family. The shift from the theological concern to the sociological is amazing. It's a different ball game. Why do you want your kid to marry a Jewish girl? All of you, not only you, but all of America has no intelligent answer to give their kids. Well, you know, in Montreal, what I used to hear them saying, she's going to call you a dirty Jew bastard after a few years. You can never take their hatred of you out of your system. So therefore, you have to be prepared to live with a potential future Nazi. Here, here this guy is going with a gorgeous blonde, having wonderful sex together, enjoying their lives together. And the only thing is the terror that one day she's going to turn out to be an anti-Semite. Now, I mean, that's, that's the rhetoric. You agree with me? You heard that rhetoric, no? Not quite, okay. I think it's extremely important to sense this. America presents us with the conflict of two alternative cultures interacting in your identity in which you feel comfortable in both. And you're wondering how do I in some way maintain distinctiveness? And the issue is why should I maintain distinctiveness? Why should I worry about being different? Let me now just fit in and join all the good things that take place in my society. There's a lot of good things that take place in Montreal, in New York, in San Francisco. Why not join in with it and feel comfortable Jewishly? Why Jewishly? Feel comfortable humanly. Then the whole Jewishly business becomes an appendage which you don't understand what, what the symbol is for. So in some way, 
there's a weakening of the distinctiveness quality, of the Kedusha quality that the Jewish people possess. We're no more distinctive. You know, everybody has their God, and we're all pluralistic. Why am I so popular? Because I say everyone should worship the way he wants to, and when we get to heaven, God is going to tell us who made a mistake. Up till then, let's relax. So, I mean, live and let live is, is the American ethos. You go to Presbyterian, I go to a Stiebel. You go to a Catholic Mass, I go to Chazen Kozovitsky. So let's all enjoy the different things that our particular culture provides for us. Why do we have to decide which one is true? That whole concern with who has the truth doesn't exist in America. That's not their issue. The issue is meaning, purpose, excitement, joy, not who has the truth. The issue of truth is not there. And therefore, people are wondering, why the distinctiveness? That's why I've often argued, you can't justify distinctiveness. The only thing you can do is create a person who lived that way, and he just is stuck. I mean, I was brought up as a from Jew. So that's who I am. I'm used to a Shabbos, I'm used to a Chag, I'm used to davening. It's something, it's the clothes that I wore all my life, so I don't feel like changing to other clothes. I don't see any other garments which are far more attractive. So I claim that you fight assimilation before it even began as a problem. You have to create a sense of connection to a family prior to any integration in the world. And therefore, I mean, all the time, well, you're teaching Islam, people come and say, your high school's reading Koran. Did you read all of the Tanakh? <laughs> you're teaching New Testament. Did they know all the Talmud? And that just gets this, if I could just describe it for you, this choking in. Stay in the family. Don't threaten the family. Don't open up to other things. You're dangerous because you are absorbing other values that you feel enrich you. If you could be inspired by your teachers in Fordham University, who are Jesuits, more so than your Rosh Yeshiva in the Yeshiva, then something is very dangerous. I had a professor at Fordham who always asked me this question. David, what would you say to a person who was born a Jew but couldn't experience anything spiritual being a Jew? He was a student of Wolfson. <laughs> it's understand Harry, Harry Austin Wolfson. And he said, I found religion in the Catholic tradition. 
Am I a sinner, David, if I tell you I found God as a Catholic? Or there's a very fine Jesuit in Jerusalem who was born to a Jewish family, who's a member of the Machon. When he came as a young kid, he met a nun who embraced him, inspired him, made him feel religious. So what is he supposed to do? Go back to Hamish Essen and get Cholent? So he didn't eat Cholent. He didn't taste Jerusalem kugels. What do you want from him? He found the Lord in places where Jews didn't think you find him. And when Jews make the claim, he's here in my shul and he ain't in any other place, that's a very hard claim to make if you live in America. And the feeling in America is that you have to feel you're tolerant and accepting and respectful of differences. <coughs> so the whole frame of reference of chosenness breaks down and you all the thinking of Mordechai Kaplan, Ani Eisen, Wishigrad, Novik, others, and rabbis, Milton Steinberg, were all concerned to prop up the idea of chosen people. And Sinishka Geingen, what do you want from me? You want me not to enjoy the opera? What do you want me not to be part of the United Appeal, which supports Christians and everybody else? I don't see the Christian as a threat, only sociologically that he may leave the family. So today the issue of chosenness is not the theological God who says, don't you dare who are around with other peoples with pagan religion. If you look at Vahayam Shemoah, the issues of Odazara, Vahayam Shemoah Tishmoah Tzubsaya Shein Eichem Tzavetzchem Hayem that's you're going to be turned into pagan worshippers. That was the biblical world. Today in America and in Canada and Israel as part of the larger world, that's not our experience. We don't feel the seductive powers of idolatry. So what happens? What happens? I wrestled with this issue when I was a rabbi. I didn't know what to tell my congregants why their kids should not go out with nice-looking Gentile girls. And I used to see them. Wow, not bad. I remember when I was 12, I flirted with the superintendent's daughter. She was a Polish Catholic. I mean, that was the world. What is the world now for us Jews? 
Why do we want to survive? Serious question. Why do we want to survive? Why do we want to be known as distinct? And to be accused by Haman that your laws they don't keep. Once you have Jews, you have aliens. You have a strange breed among you. So Lubavitch says, we're comfortable in America. America is our new Zion. We could live out our Jewish life without any problems in Square Town, in Muncie, in Borough Park. You think you're in Europe. America makes us welcome as a distinct group. We have a big Hanukkah menorah in Times Square. Not only a Christmas tree, but we have the menorah. We're here. Lubavitch says we're here. And the mobile goes through the street saying, Yiddish Medalach, light candles for Shabbos. Yiddish Medalach, Zaya Yiddish Kent. And they're screaming from the car. And the guy with the film standing on the corner. And every time I go by, he says, You want to put, did you put on film yet? I said, I think so. <laughs> so I feel so bad because I take away from him his great mitzvah for the day. Before I go into the airport, there's a whole sack of filmmakers. And as soon as I get into the plane, what's the difference in El Al and Continental? El Al is davening all the time. There's Mignonim in the back. Did you say Kedushiet? I said, leave me alone, I'm trying to rest. But you're Jewish, no, you're wearing a kippah. Did you say Kedushiet? So I always have to hide. I don't know, I would wear a cross <laughs> if they'd leave me alone. And that's when I go in the back and they, I just hear them, oh, then it, I say, I'm in a plane, let people be quiet. That's not the situation. What are we? Are we Kaddish sayers? Are we mourners? I ask myself, Hartman, what is distinctively Jewish about you? I say, I know I do certain things which are Jewish. I put on film in the morning. Okay, so I did it. I claim that the whole world of the Tanakh, of Jewish history, and the concept of the election of Israel has lost its compelling live option and power. And the issue which serious people failed, felt that they have to dedicate themselves is to provide a living experience of Judaism which takes you out of the question, why be Jewish? You don't ask yourself, why be Jewish? You're having fun. <laughs> I mean, why go to this movie? But it's great. 
Why do you play basketball? And I don't know. I don't know. I have no why. I just know that I get on the court, I feel good. So the why has no more place. What is needed is an intense experiential foundation which haunts your memory wherever you go. You see your grandmother. You see the bubba. You see your mother making the challah. And what the young people used to ask me when I was a rabbi is we didn't have a mother who gave us an Arab Shabbos. We didn't have a bubby who we could watch. In our home, you couldn't smell Arab Shabbos. So what do we do? How do we absorb that living reality into our souls? That is the issue of chosen people. And I want to take you in another path. I claim that Jews were never comfortable with their distinctiveness. They in some way, they wanted to be different. They wanted to get out of the, the shell of their Jewish reality. And they were worried. How do they justify themselves, to themselves, the God of the world suddenly becoming the God of a particular people? How does the creator God of the whole world suddenly lose his connection to the world and gets focused within this very distinct particular people? They never were comfortable with that. You see the Midrash, I mean, does, does, when you read the Bible, does it seem to tell you that God went around the whole world and asked them, do you want to accept my Torah? Show me any place in the Bible which talks about God going around to the world and says, I have a precious Torah. And if you want to have it, and everybody said, what is it? Thou shalt not kill, I make a living from killing. Thou shalt not fornicate, I make a living from having Protestant... Well, not Protestant. Prostitutes. Yeah, okay. I, I don't think you're a Protestant, you're a prostitute. You're something else, you're foolish. But the point is, he goes around the world. And you have a Gemara text. Brenda, they have the Gemara of Zara? You could say that our mission has been fulfilled. Yes. And maybe that's the, at the root of the problem. But we, if our mission has fulfilled, so why are we so worried about disappearing? Why does that? He married Mary, or she married Frankie. So why do we get so excited about the Jewish thing? If you're right from what you say, and I think I you are right. I'm putting it out, yeah. What? I'm putting it out there. You're putting it out, okay. Yeah, as a possibility, right. Serious question. 
Maybe we have done what we were meant to do, and now, and now, what's the end now? Does the mishpacha go on as a mishpacha, or do we in some way try to feel the rhythms of the larger world, of another world? Uh, do I, yes, I just speak into it. Uh, just speak into in it terms, loud. In terms of uh, the covenant being eternal, we need to look, take the concept of the threat of idolatry, uh, the struggle against idolatry, and, and see it in its modern perversion, in its modern frame. And then our covenant is not accomplished. But our covenant is more serious and needed today than ever before. And that means things like uh, the end justifies the means, offering human sacrifice, human blood sacrifice, uh, as we see in Iran with children who blow up minefields for the noble end. Uh, moral relativism. So do we call, so there is idolatry do we call that idolatry? Day? Yes. Because, Why? Because it is based on moral relativism. It's I don't know what it was based degradation. on. The whole structure, as you mentioned, with regard to the Tanakh, is the, our mission to struggle against idolatry. We did it when the entire Jewish people united against the Soviet Union for let my people go. The Soviet Union was an idolatrous uh, organization, structure. And the Jews within the Soviet Union, when they discovered their Judaism, they rose up against it. They wanted out. And we mobilized. And we mobilized the Gentiles. And we were able to do it only because our covenant is eternal. And today... Do people share that with him? Well, it's not the only... I mean, Mama, what would you say? Do you share that thought with him? There are a lot of other reasons for the breakdown of the Soviet Union and the release of the Jewish people. But my question, are the two things irreconcilable to be part of the general society that you take certain things that you think are are positive and valuable and maintain your Jewishness because there are certain things of uh, philosophy and an outlook on life that you think are valuable that you want to uh, have your children follow at that to appreciate the the lessons and the philosophy of, of being Jewish forgetting about the the practice and the and the religious aspect perhaps you know it's uh... okay Rabbi Mama, did you want to add something to the conversation? No, no, no. no I... <laughs> you left the rabbinate, okay. Anybody want to say anything to this? Yes. Would you agree with this gentleman here? In a way, I do. Louder. In a way, I do. I think in Western culture, the, the new form of idolatry is the worship of me. I mean, the selfishness is, is so rampant that I can't believe what I see. To me, it's another form of idolatry. So idolatry becomes a name we use for everything. 
Bad people, idolatry. Egocentric people, idolatrous. They worship themselves. I think the issue today is so stark. It's one of uh, human survival. Human survival. When we have, uh, in, uh, I, I call it a distortion of Islam. When we have people in terms of an ism prepared to see half the world blow up, to see them prepared if they have uh, 50 million people prepared to sacrifice 10 million in order to achieve their end. And if anybody is supposed to unite and to bring international consciousness to bear against what's happening today, it is the one people who has been given an eternal covenant against idolatry. And it's not at all difficult to identify idolatry today in terms of the threat to the very survival of humanity. And I'm not talking about global warming. Okay. That's yeah. a mission, and that's a mission we can convert people on if we're interested in conversion. Everything else I've heard here, there's no way except you want to bring a young girl or a young boy into the family and, uh, and she'll say or he'll say, well, I have my family. Let him come over to mine. Why should, he, why should we go into yours? And the kid uh, sees no reason either. He doesn't have an answer to the why. And unless we give an answer to the why, the family over a period of generations will disintegrate and disappear. Loud, please. Yeah, there's a tendency sometimes for people who live very closely together and are close in the sense of being together, doing things together, not to really know each other at all. And I think part of a relationship is to want the true nature of the person. I don't hear you. You want to know the true nature of the person who you feel so close to or declare you're so close to, and uh, you just don't have it. So when we have some intimation of the true nature of God, like Ram, Rambam would say that ain't lo demutaguf, not everyone would agree with him, but he would say God's having no physicality is part of his true nature. So I don't know what you want if you speak so low. Yeah, well, I maybe mean, uh, because I'm not sure. You want me to give sure. you something to give you energy? Vakasha. Candy bar, anybody? All right. What are you saying? Anyway, I'm trying to say that we have certain tradition, what we call Torah, of what God's like and what he's not like. And it's not the same traditions as Christians or Muslims would have. They have different ones. And we, we want to preserve for the world what we think is a correct nature, uh, a correct know, picture of God. That's it. I can't respond because okay. I don't hear you. Let me say this to you. Not that I want to bring comfort to you, but I chose the theme of chosen people because I think it's the most compelling issue of how do we maintain distinctiveness and yet know that we're part of something much larger. That the God we love, on one hand, has an intimate relationship with a particular family and the God we love has created the world in his image. 
Now, who am I going with? Is God playing the field? You know, in other words, where is our psyche? When rabbis could write that I won't allow an Arab in Sfat, and you're not allowed to rent homes to Arabs, and you can't make them feel comfortable in this country, what am I meeting? Am I meeting a Jewish response to the stranger? Am I meeting the distinctive genius of the Jew? And I will be threatened if there will be more Arabs in Sfat? What have we become here? Have we internalized a shtetl mind which sees the outside world as dangerous? as harmful, as alien and corrupt? Where do we stand in relationship to a, a world of different people? Do we think about that? So when we want to send back the 450 children back to Africa, so the only one who spoke with rage was Yossi Sarid. It was the liberal left. But I didn't hear the Haredi community protest and saying, you can't send children away alone. Who raises a moral voice in this country? Who raises a moral voice critical of the government policies of segregation. Who is the moral voice? Where does it emanate from? If we speak about a chosen people, what meaning do we give that today? Now you claim the meaning is to still fight idolatry. I claim something much simpler that we should be decent. That you walk in the street, and if you say hello to somebody, he doesn't say, what do you want? <laughs> what do you have in mind? When you're driving your car, you don't have to look in 10 directions because you know the people are not gonna go over you. I have very minimal understandings of chosenness. I call it menschlichkeit. Simple human decency. You're riding on a bus and a lady comes in. You say, And you see kindness. You go to a hospital, you see the way a nurse treats a patient. And you, and you look at the way we... I mean, I think the time has come when we should resurrect what our distinctive identity is about and articulated and acted out. It's no more meaningful to say, we are a chosen people. God, you're lucky you have us. Why is he so lucky? Do you think God is lucky, Moshe? <laughs> We're not the only people in the world with Menschlichkeit. With what? Menschlichkeit is not our exclusive purview. 
Menschlichkeit. What do you mean exclusive? Who says that it has to well, be exclusive? Well, you say chosenness means Menschlichkeit. Is that, is that, but that's not, this is not our exclusive characteristic. Okay, I, I appreciate, hear what she says. Menschlichkeit is not our exclusive characteristic. I want to tell you, I tell you, I spend a lot of time with the army. And I gave a series of lectures to the Shelly Schutt. And I was telling them, they asked me, Professor Hartman, can you tell us what a Jewish army is about? So I said, I think a Jewish army is where you don't embarrass a soldier in front of his group, that you don't abuse him because of your power structure, that you don't take advantage of his weakness and vulnerability. So all the soldiers raise their hand, excuse me, Professor Hartman, but that's true in the Norwegian army as well. So it's not particularly Jewish army. I said, what are you talking about? Because Norway is decent, then suddenly we, decency is not a Jewish virtue. I would say, like I said to someone, the Hartman family wants to be unique. Everybody eats around the table. We eat on the floor. You can't accuse us of being like others. Distinctiveness does not mean exclusive claim of, uh, that we have that no one else has. If I act as a mensch and see this menschlichkeit existing in other people's, I am deeply satisfied. I don't feel that I've lost a Jewish value. Jewish values are not unique. I mean, we came to live in the land not to be unique, but to be decent. Uh, you see, I have a much more modest understanding of being a member of this family. I have no great... When I say, I don't have in mind that right in the street, everyone is cleaning up the streets and picking up the garbage on the sidewalk so no one slips. I don't have an image of self-transcendence and kindness and walking in the street and people driving like mentioned. I have very modest claims. I, I am not a Schwitzer. I have modest claims. I walk in the street and someone says, Boka Tov, Professor Hartman, Echata Magish. I said, thank you for asking. Do you want to hear my feelings? He says, no, I just meant to be, you know, formal. <laughs> Don't give me a spiel of how you really feel. But at least that was nice. He says, Boka Tov. In other words, greeting a person, having a kabel kol adam besefer panim yafot. I want to take the concept of chosenness out of its cosmological, metaphysical realm and bring it into the normal rhythms 
of everyday life. And if those rhythms are found in French people, I'm very happy. Yes. Why do I have to be Jewish to be good? You don't have to be Jewish in order for so that to happen. What makes me distinctively Jewish that other people are not? That you want to be Jewish. <laughs> that you want to be Jewish. Other people don't say to you, I want to be Jewish. You want to open up a paper and see, did the Jews do anything? I remember when Kennedy was shot. People around me wanted to know, was Ruby a Jew? Did, did the guy who pulled the gun a Jew? No guy asked that. No Frenchman says to himself, was it a Frenchman? <laughs> but we want to know, is, was it a Jew? What is that about? Isaiah Berlin felt that's the very meaning of Jewishness. It's not satisfying. Menschlichkeit, compassion, decency could be gotten no matter where you are. But you are situated in a Jewish ambience. You are Jewish. I'm a Jew. I can't run away from it, so why do I have to? So I'm only saying that the Jewish experience has to be first inculcated into you, and then why be Jewish stops being a question. Why be Jewish? Why not? Why not? That's a Jewish answer. You ask a question, then you answer the question with another question. No, that's a... Okay, why not? It's a very philosophical answer. Why do I have to, in some way, go shopping all over? I found a good store. I found a workable product. The, my claim is that the problem of the modern Jew is that it ceased being a workable product. It ceased being a workable experience, which then eliminates the question of why be Jewish. Why be Jewish is a result of the failure of the lived experience to create a sense of identity. You understand? Your identity is shaped prior to you becoming a philosopher. I am Jewish. Someone asked me, why? I know I grew up in Brownsville. My mother was Pestle, my father was Sholem. I went to yeshiva, let me tell you about all my years. You want to read my whole book? I am who I am. And I can't become what I'm not. When we don't create that I am who I am, then in some way assimilation and other things set in. Then you have to justify why stay Jewish. I claim that you, the question is too late. When you ask the question, you've passed the border. The only way to deal with this is you have to prevent the question from surfacing. I am a Jew.
I lived 80 years of my life as a Jew. That's who I am. See, young people in America think that you can put on identities. You can buy it in the store. I'm going to become a Zen Buddhist. Next year, Hindu. Then I'm going to go another place, another Swami, Shamami. And I'm going to go to Thailand, and I'm going to, you know, see the beautiful women in Thailand. That's not how identities are born. Identities are born through deep lived experiences, deep living memories. You don't build identities through sort of going to shopping. It's not just something you shop for. The thinness, the thinness of human identities today among young people is because they haven't given themselves roots and an identity which is nurtured by experience, by life. So kids go off into anything now. Balichuvas. Go to the streets of Jerusalem and speak to the kids. I saw it. It was a horrible scene. Prostitutes, drug smuggling. Everything was there. What makes it Jewish? They make a bracha before marijuana. In other words, we came into the picture too late. We have to admit that it's too late for a great percentage of Jews. We have to build a way of life which precedes the question. So when you say, why do I have to be Jewish to be menschlich? I'm not saying you don't have to be Jewish in order to be menschlich, but being Jewish is being menschlich. But you don't have to be a Jew in order to be menschlich. But being a Jew is menschlichkeit. That others have it. You're fair. The characteristics that shape our identity are no more values that are distinct from the world. We build our identities today within the world. That's the meaning of Zionism. That's the meaning of Israel. You're in the world. Meshorim, yeshiva world, they don't have that conflict. There's no conflicting worlds that are interacting with each other. There's nothing there outside that I have to address or listen to. We live in two civilizations. Mordechai Kaplan knew that. And we are struggling to find how the music of one civilization can play in the other without chauvinistic claims, without triumphalism. It's not simple. So my friends, I come now to the conclusion of, of what I hoped would be the beginning. <laughs> I love the Midrash that God went all over the world. And I felt, gee, 
They were bothered by that. God, please don't just choose us. You're the God of the world. You are Anochi Adonai. Asheberati Shemaim Va'aretz. You're not Jewish. You are the source of life for all human beings. Don't make us feel that we are the only ones that exist in your eyes. We want to feel that all human life in your eyes are sacred. Help us to, in some way, embrace the world because you're a Havaya, Anoch Adonai. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai is yud Hey vav Hey is the God of the world. Shema Yisrael, the God of the world is our God. We've appropriated him in our intimate lives. But Adonai Achad, but it's a oneness. It is not a God who makes distinctions humanly between a Jew and a non-Jew. And if you make that distinction, you are a kofer bi'ikar. You are a heretic. You've rejected the fundamental biblical idea. Is God in the world? Do we sense the sacredness of human life as a pervasive value in the world? Do people celebrate life and hope? And when I get up and I read in the papers, Egypt, then another country is going to go down. Who knows, me or you? I want to celebrate life. To believe in God is to wake up in the morning and say, I'm thankful for life. I want to sanctify life. That's what it means to have faith in God. How do I speak to so many different Jews who don't share these sensibilities, who it doesn't bother them if a guy is not treated properly? It doesn't bother them if a Machal Shabbos is pushed on the side doesn't bother them. It's not their world. They don't see the other. They don't see a broad presence of God in the world. That's the meaning of Adonai. yud Hey vav Hey. I am. I am the source of all being, according to the Rambam. Making distinctions to the dignity of human beings is the antithesis to the notion of chosen people. It was once used as a hammer against the world. We are chosen, you are nothing. Goyim, you're not worth anything. The only ones who are worth anything is the Jews. That was a one-time mindset. When a Jew felt alienated from the world, when a Jew felt oppressed by the world, but the Jews are not being attacked in the world today. Maybe they are, I don't know. But I don't want to now return to a period of time when I say, the whole world is zevel. The only thing that is worthwhile is Jewish life.
that's not where I want my Yiddish guy to lead me. And that's not where I want election to lead me, although election was used that way. Only you are elect. Only you are distinct. Only you are holy. Only you are important. The rest of the world is garbage. So therefore, if a guy is bleeding on Shabbos, you don't call an ambulance. Because Pekuch Nefesh of a guy is not Terch Shabbos. It's not a Nefesh. It doesn't evoke any sense of real feeling that there's a Tzelem Elohim right in front of me. And I have to wake up to that Tzelem Elohim in every person. And does my particular identity as a Jew, does my rich particularism, does my rich mishpachtologies, does the rich family say, Shalom al Yisrael, I got my family, screw you. <laughs> Can't help it that I feel this issue. Yes. The last question, and let me, yes, you have a question, I'm sorry. Can you wait a second? This gentleman had his hand up before. Vakasha. Moshe Tenlo. I'm personally very much uh, influenced by Heschel. And Heschel said we don't study the Bible enough. And most of what you've evoked this evening was we need to be more biblical. And the reason that we're Jewish is we have a covenant with God, we made a covenant, and that covenant is permanent. And the covenant teaches us, love your God with all your heart, and, and we also have a covenant to, to be good to other people. And this is the covenant. It's like I get married, I'm not a serial uh, person. I say, ah, I'm tired of this wife, it's more comfortable to live with another. I don't keep on going, changing, changing wives. I see you have a very nice wife. I do, and I haven't, I'm not changing her. But that's the, I think this is, this is why, because we have this covenant and it's eternal, and this is why we have to be Jewish. Uh, I studied with, 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 a, with a wonderful Dominican priest who was the advisor to Pope John. This, he's wonderful. I'm not a Catholic, but I, I can appreciate it. But I have my covenant, and my covenant teaches some of the same values, but we also have things that are a little different. It may not make us better, but... We're different, this is part of the covenant too. So it's this covenant that keeps us Jewish because we remember the covenant. The Jews, why are we all historians? Because we remember. We remember the covenant and you don't, you don't give up your family. Family, God is our family. He said, you'll be my treasure. You do these things, we make our covenant, we sign the contract. It's a contract that shouldn't be broken, that's it. Uh, anyway, that's the way I feel. And I think yeah, but that feeling of covenant that you feel is felt by a minuscule amount of Jews. It may be, but maybe this Go is... Go in the street. I, I like to shop in Shuk Machna Yehuda. And go there and watch the people and say, do you, do you know what it means to be a covenantal people? So the answer was, who's selling it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm opening a booth there next time. Make up a booth. Covenant for sale. I mean, it's beautiful. You are a member of a covenantal people, and that binds you. But that's an achievement. How do you bring Jews into the covenant? 
I want a mass conversion of Jews. I'm not worried about the conversion of Goyim. I'm worried about the conversion of Jews. How do I bring them into the covenant? How do I tell them that the God of Israel needs you? Well, you know, there's strange people. You have someone like Saul Alinsky, uh, who was a secular... Who? Saul Alinsky, who was a secular Jew, but one of the things he loved to quote was, was Hillel, where there are no men be a man. So practice the covenant as examples. If you look at uh, people talking about how do you convert people either to your every religion has that. They're not always out interested in converting people into their religion. They're interested in getting people to come back to what they think is the authentic part of their religion. Uh, so how do you do this? It's, it's mostly by, uh, by example or by preaching or some combination. Yeah, but we see we don't have living communities which we can show our children to and say, Kadesh. And they, you know, and they like communities which are right-wingers, fundamentalists, who have the full truth. What do I have to listen to you, Mama? I have the truth. I'm saved already. You are Nebuch outside. How do you fight that? Well, I, I think it's, it's part of knowing our, our history. We all know that nobody has the truth. Even Moses, the greatest person, was not perfect. We all make mistakes and we all learn from each other. And, you know, we are, are, we, we're, we're taught to say that you can learn from everybody. So that's the whole point is being flexible and open and in the end, it's only God that knows, not, not, not us. Why do you want to stay with just one, one community that shares the same views? Uh, first of all, I think that's impossible where everybody's going to agree. <laughs> anyway, I don't want to die when I want to let other people speak. Yes. Um, I personally don't feel that. Um, what? I personally don't feel that menschlichkeit and wanting to see whether a Jew was mentioned in the newspaper are things that justify having the high price we're paying for a Jewish state. Um, I personally think that Judaism, at least for me, is much more than menschlichkeit. And lots of the reason why I'm a religious Jew is that I see in it lots of values and other things that I can't find somewhere else. And I don't think that all the hospitals that were built by Jews in America are from menschlichkeit. And uh, the Jewish army being such a Jewish army is from menschlichkeit. I feel that there's so much more than that, so many values that we can't, that I, I don't find in other places that for, for me is Judaism. I appreciate what you just said. That's why if you remember what I said, I'm playing it very low key. I have very minimal demands. I wanna see holiness in the simple moments of life. I don't feel, you know, I'm, I'm not a mystic. I don't go into ecstasies. I don't believe in Kabbalistic theurgencies. I just want to see how human life is lived better, more decent. Pasha decency is for me an ultimate value. I don't brush it aside that quickly. I want something larger. My, I don't mind you should want something larger but I want to teach you to treat your chayal 
Remember his name. Ask him if his mother and father are well. Ask him what happened when he went home for Shabbos. Speak to him. Engage him in a human conversation. Let him feel his humanity in the way you respond to him. For that, to me, is what I would hope would exist. Not saying that that's the end, but that fundamentally, for me, that's the beginning, the ultimate beginning. I begin where simple human life is. I go into the Makolet. I walk in the street. I meet a poor person. I I agree that that's the uh, that's the basic beginning, but I'm not I, saying that's the end. No, I I know, but the at the same step, it also has to be much higher because that's that's what Judaism is. It's I would every, say Judaism. Everyone, everyone. I don't think Judaism is higher. Judaism is very low. It wants very simple things. Read Vayikra Yutes. What does it say? Don't give bad advice. If you're being tochach, don't be malbim pnechavero barabim. Don't humiliate him. Help him be able to listen to you and to meet you. Help him to understand that you're meeting him as a human being in your response to him or her. Let his humanity surface because you are open to his humanity and not open to change him quickly, but to allow his humanness to surface. Anyway, that's what I feel. Can't help it. I'm lost. You have been listening to David Hartman, President Emeritus and founder of Shalom Hartman Institute. Subscribe to this podcast to be notified of more lectures from Shalom Hartman Institute. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.